before you, the maker of heaven and earth, and we confess all together there is none like you. For you have known us when we were in our mother's womb, when we were covered there in darkness. You knew our most inner parts. You wove us together. You made us special for your purpose. There is no accidental life because you are the life giver. And so we confess that you are a great God who gives good gifts. You're the one from whom life comes. And with you there is no shadow of turning. And so God, we come to you this morning so broken over our own sin. Our callousness, God, as we have in these years, these 30, almost 40 years now, in our nation's history, have sanctioned as a people abortion on demand. We confess we've become callous about it. It's sanitized to us. It's closed off from our daily living. And so we don't even think about it. But yet, the voice of these young ones goes up before you as those who were offered on the idolatrous platforms of Canaan. Their voices go up. And cry out, save us. Forgive us for not hearing their voice. Forgive us for not giving them a voice. Forgive us from hiding from their voice. We confess we've become callous in so many ways. And Lord, we're not only callous towards these babies, but we're callous to their mothers. So many, some here maybe, Lord, have had to uh, face the decision of keeping a child when they themselves feel like they have no hope and no life to look forward to. And maybe, God, there is someone here who's already made the decision and it's already finalized and, and their child has been murdered. We've become callous to these women. Judgmental and hatred in our hearts condemns us, not them. And we cry out to you for forgiveness. And Lord, we ask that you extend your spirit to these sweet women and that you would lift their countenance and that you would help them to see that there is no sin that is so heinous that is so hurtful that you cannot forgive. Help them to see in the lives of your saints from your word that you forgave murderers, adulterers, witchcraft. You forgave all manner of sin. And you still do. Help them know there's hope. Help us to be a light of hope to them and to the, to the dads. Help us, God, as we hold out the truth, to not trample on real people who are hurting. Lord, we we pray for these young women that have not yet finalized the decision. They've not gone through with what they're contemplating. Whether they're here or they're in our community, God, I pray that in this moment, Your Spirit would just flood them with the reality of the life that is in them. That That they would know that You have a purpose and a plan 
for these little ones. And that they would decide, no matter how hard it is to give this child life, help them to know there are plenty of families who would love to adopt and there are plenty of resources to them if they decide to raise this child. Lord, we ask that you would be merciful in these cases and that you would give them hope and that you would most of all remind them of the Savior and His mercy. Whether they're Christians or not, Lord, would you just let them see that Christ is merciful and loving, a tender shepherd who draws them to Himself. Lord, I pray they would find the resources that they need. We thank you for ministries like Save a Life here in our county that, that, Lord, are ministering to hundreds and even over the thousands now a year of of families and, and women who are facing crisis moments in their lives. And now they're teaching them to be good parents and they're training them in spiritual truth and they're lifting them up and and they're giving them physical provision. We thank you for Save a Life and we thank you for Michelle and her team of, of women and, and other volunteers who are, who are making a difference in this fight. And I pray, God, that you would help us to join them in any way possible, whether that be we volunteer or we help others volunteer or we give money or resources or time or whatever we have. God, would, would you just bring it out of us that we might rally to the front and fight not just for the temporal life, though that is so blessed and so precious, but that we would fight for eternal life. And that these women would be shown the mercy that you have shown to us. And then that you might draw them to you if they're not yours and their husbands and these children. And then whole generations are affected. This is your work, God. And We confess that we have been callous and we confess that we have not done what all that we could, but we commit now. I commit and this church commits, Lord, to to make this cause more our cause and to take this on in your strength and in your grace. It's in your name we pray. Amen. If you take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 106. We're going to be preaching from verses 32 through 48. I'm going to read that, and and then we'll uh, have the sermon. Psalm 106, beginning in verse 32. The psalmist writes, They angered him at the waters of Meribah, And it went ill with Moses on their account, for they made his spirit bitter, and he spoke rashly with his lips. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood... They, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with the blood of their sons and daughters. Thus they, came un, they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. 
Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his heritage. He gave them into the hand of the nations, so that those who hated him, them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection under their power. Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by all those who held them captive. The cry of the psalmist. Verse 47, save us, O Lord, our God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, and everlast, from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. We find in this psalm, Psalm 106, which is in its early part, verses 1 through 31, and even in the part section we just read, it's a recounting of the history of Israel. And it's a very checkered history, we might say. The people of Israel are people who've gone through obedience, rebellion, captivity, repentance. Obedience, rebellion, captivity, Repentance. And they've made this cycle hundreds and hundreds of times in the Old Testament. They, they, they were always in a state between one of those points on the scale in their history. And Psalm 106 is just a recap for the people. All right? And you find in Psalm 106 the sen- a sense, a feeling, and maybe you felt it, especially in verse 47. When I said this is the cry of the psalmist. Save us, O Lord. You hear that often in the Old Testament, right? And it's unresolved. This psalm is unresolved. There's no Savior at the end of Psalm 106 in this point in history. They they don't know Him yet fully. They haven't realized the promise yet fully. The Old Testament itself is resolved, unresolved. Totally unresolved. It it climaxes and ends. Lots of promises, no fulfillment. As a matter of fact, if you look at the Old Testament, which by the way, testament is the Latin word. It really is Old Covenant, New Covenant. That's what your Bible is. It's divided in two sections. And that rightly is the only two ways to divide end time line history. Old Covenant, New Covenant. Okay? There's an overarching theme. There's an overarching covenant of redemption. And it is being unraveled for us slowly in the pages of Scripture. Old Covenant to Christ. From Christ forward, the New Covenant. Which Jeremiah prophesied about in Jeremiah 31. I will write a new covenant with them. I will write it on their hearts. And they will know me. Okay, that started. We're living it. We know Him. We're in the New Covenant. So there's two ways. Old Covenant, New Covenant. Alright? In the Old Covenant, we can also call that the Book of Promises. And the New Covenant, the Book of Fulfillment. All God's promises, Paul says, find their yes and amen 
in him, Christ. So when Christ came, God answered his promises. He resolved the tension that you often read in the Old Testament. So be careful when you read the Old Testament. The more you study, the more you read it, the more you feel this unresolved tension, but you're not in that unresolved tension. That's your history because you're a part of the children of Abraham, but that's not unresolved any longer for you. Okay? So be careful when you study the Old Testament and be careful when you teach it to your children. Do not teach these things as if they are not done. Always take them back to Jesus. Always end with Christ. And we're going to do that today. Okay? The people in Psalm 106 are feeling the tension of unresolved promises. The answer hasn't come yet. We're waiting. We're anticipating. We're, we're, we're begging. We're pleading. But He's not here. But that's not where we are. We're beyond that in the pale of redemptive, redemptive history. And so as we look at this text, it helps to shine light on the fact that Jesus Christ is the answer. And I want to run through that for you. In the Old Testament, we see that things are incomplete and we're looking for that decisive completing to happen. And it happens in Jesus the Messiah, who the New Testament calls the second Adam. In Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, Paul introduces him to us as the second Adam. So in the Old Covenant, there's a first Adam. And in the New Covenant, there's a new Adam. His name is Christ. So all the promises that were made to Adam have been fulfilled now in Christ. You see that? All right. Keep going. There was in he Christ is the fulfillment, the final Moses. Acts chapter 3, verses 22, and Acts 7, verse 37, tells us that Jesus is the second Moses. So the old covenant had a Moses, a chief prophet of his people. And it was unresolved. He himself cried out, Oh, that you would pour out your spirit on all your sons and daughters, that they might prophesy. But that didn't find its fulfillment until Jesus came, was buried raised from the dead and poured His Spirit out on the people at Pentecost. Jesus is that second Moses. He's the fulfillment of that. So whenever you're teaching Moses, you need to teach him and then you need to lead whoever you're teaching to Christ, the greater one. He is the final Israel. In the Old Covenant, God has a people. Their name is Israel. He deals with them as their God, and they are His people. And then Jesus Christ Himself comes onto the scene. And He is, according to Matthew, Israel. Matthew chapter 2. I brought my son Israel out of Egypt. Hosea said this, speaking of Christ, Israel. A final confirmation that He is the true Israel is Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Israel was led into the wilderness by the Spirit of God and tempted, and they failed. Jesus Christ, Matthew 4 tells us, was led out into the wilderness by the Spirit of God, and He was tempted in every way just as His brothers were, except He did not fail. He was tempted with food. He was tempted with idolatrous worship. He was tempted with the kingdoms of this world, and He Himself kept all those things perfectly and submitted Himself to God the Father. He is Israel. He is Israel. He is the true 
the one who was promised. He is the high priest in Hebrews 7, 23 through 24. Greater than the Aaronic high priesthood, he is the priest in the line of Melchizedek. He is the final high priest, and there's none like him. He is the Passover sacrifice. He is the manna from heaven. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He is the Son of Man told us in Daniel chapter 7. His blood was the blood that was promised to be the final covenant in Jeremiah 31, verse 31. And then he can be said to be the yes and the truth to all of God's promises in the old covenant. Jesus. And Paul tells us that in 2 Corinthians 1.20. So, when we read our Old Testament, I do that short history to say the reason it's there is that we might see Christ. God didn't wake up after Malachi was written and say, Man, this thing's not resolved. We better come up with a plan. Christ has always been the purpose. Christ has always... So, when you teach... the the Bible, to your children, because I know you fathers and mothers are teaching your children, so this is a short history lesson on teaching your children when you teach them. Never end it so that a Jewish person would be comfortable with your teaching. Never, ever, ever. They should be very uncomfortable when you get to the end and you say, but that's not the end of the story. And you take them to fulfillment. That Jewish rabbi should get up and excuse himself in anger. We don't teach the Old Testament as a Jewish book. This is a Christian book. All of it. Genesis to Revelation. So Psalm 106 has a word to us as Christians. It has an application for today. So let's get the application they have for them and bring it forward to today. If you look in Psalm 106, it is, a, as I said, a history of their failure. It starts out, praise the Lord. Give thanks to God for He is good. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all His praises? Blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteous at all times. Verse 3 is a key verse in the argument. Verse 3 leads us to where He's going. He brings up justice for a purpose. He brings up righteousness for a reason. And the reason is verses 32 through 48. There was no one in Israel who did right. There was no one in Israel who was fighting for justice in the time of this psalm. They were all gone out of the way. They were, they were in sin. So he then goes down and begins to recount the history. He says, we have sinned. We have committed iniquity in verse 7. We have done wickedness. And then he gives the deliverance account. He delivered us out of Egypt with mighty wonders and works. He, uh, the abundance of his steadfast love. He took us across the Red Sea. He rebuked the Red Sea, and we crossed on dry land. You see all these great things that God did. And our adversaries were crushed under the waters of the Red Sea. Then they believed his words, and they sang his praise. The two people of Israel did that on the far side of the Red Sea. They sang to God. They, 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 they celebrated his grace. And then look what it says in verse 13. But they soon forgot God's works. They did not wait for his counsel. But they had wanton cravings in the wilderness. And they put God to the test in the desert. He gave them what they asked, but sent a wasting disease among them. And then he's going to continue down through 
the history of the people of Israel. Now skip over to verse 32 because that's our text for this morning. How does what I'm talking about have, have anything? How does that connect at all with abortion, with the right to life, with save a life? Well, if you look here in verse 32, it's interesting. They angered God at the water of Meribah. And they, they caused things to be grievous for Moses. He became bitter. He spoke rashly with his lips. He struck the rock to get water, and God cursed him. He wasn't allowed to go into the promised land. He lost the, 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 the opportunity to go in with the people into the promised land because they angered him. They did not destroy the people's as the Lord commanded. Now, this is the second part of their sin. They sinned against God in the wilderness, and they sinned against God in not killing the people of the land. God had sanctioned that all of the people of Canaan be killed. Men, women, children, animals, domestic animals. All of it were to be wiped out. And I know that's troublesome to us, but there's purpose. We don't have time to get into that, but there's purpose. And the purpose is quickly given to us in verse 35. In verse 35, it says they mixed with these nations and they learned to do as they did. Unfortunately, many have taken this and and made it a statement about interracial marriage. If you were here for the sermon last week, obviously that's not where I stand because I promote interracial marriage. I believe it is a good thing. What does this verse mean? The problem is when they didn't kill all of the people of the land and they began to marry them, they began to worship their idols. What we have here is a religious mixing an unequally yoked condition. God's people were yoking with those who did not believe in God. So that's the equivalent. If you're looking for the equivalent in the Old Testament when God forbids His people from marrying other people and other races, it's a religious statement. It is a statement about don't marry people that don't worship me. That's what He's saying. Don't mix with those who are idolaters. It's the same statement Paul gives us in the New Testament. So that's not a statement on interracial marriage. It's a statement on their idolatry. And what was their idolatry in verse 36? They, their idols became a snare to them. Well, what was the snare? They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood the blood of their sons and their daughters. They sacrificed them to the idols of Canaan. I want you to get the picture. This is an ugly passage. It is, it is gruesome. They took these children and bled them out, cut them open, and offered them to the idols, to the gods of Canaan. These are God's children. This is, these are children from Israel being offered up. What belonged to God was being offered up on the idols to false gods. This is not clean. This is brutal. This is, this is one of the most horrific passages you can deal with. They were taking these children, laying them down, and slitting their throat until they bled out. To these idols. And you say. Oh, we, we would never. We would never do this. Be careful. Demons. 
or who they're offering it to. Whenever you worship anything but God, the system that's driving that is demonic. Would you agree that what I've just described to you is you would, you would easily say, readily say, that belongs in the realm of demonic. Cutting open babies is demonic. Okay? And they're offering them to these gods when they really belong to God himself. And I'm just dealing with some of the text here, and then we'll get to how it applies to us. Notice that he says they sacrificed. He doesn't use the term they murdered. He uses the term they sacrificed. They offered them, in other words. They thought they had a purpose for what they were doing. They thought there was a defense for what they were doing. They were, they were appeasing the gods. They were doing what was right in their culture. They were offering this thing. We're not killing our children. We're not murdering our children. We're, we're doing the right thing. We're worshiping. They, that's why he calls it sacrifice. We can call it murder. Okay? But then that, that doesn't really get to the depth of the deception that's going on in here. The people of Israel are deceived. And they believe they're doing something that's right. Why he says in verse 3, No one is just and no one is right. No one is fulfilled, verse 3, in Psalm 106. They've twisted and perverted what is right. That's their day. Notice that he doesn't just call them their children. They sacrifice their children. Notice he says their sons and their daughters. Unfortunately, in a lot of cultures around the world for all time, daughters were expendable. But who in their right mind offers up their sons? Who would ever think to put their son on an altar and that's their future? Economically in their land, that's the only way they can survive is to have a generation of workers coming up. And they're doing both sons and daughters. This is not about a sex, a, 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 a statement against um, a, a certain particular sex, men or women. This is wholesale. They've sold out the whole generation to the demons. They're putting the whole generation on the altar of the demons and killing it. And then you have the issue of the demons. And you have the issue to deal with there where everything they're doing is an offer. Not to false gods, which sounds kind of bad, but when you say demons, now we all shudder. God describes these sons and daughters as innocent blood. Do you see that in verse 38? Innocent blood. Now, they're not innocent in terms of of original sin. They're guilty of original sin. All of us born from the womb of a woman, save Christ, were born in sin. Psalm 51 assures us of that. Other passages assure us of that. When we're born, we're sinners. We don't become sinners. But what God's saying is in comparison to the Canaanites, the babies are sinless. In comparison to those who are offering them on the idols, altars, these babies are innocent. These babies didn't choose to worship demons. They became the fodder in the fire of worshiping demons. That's what God's saying. They're innocent. And so God's response to that is, I hate my heritage. I abhor them. 
He had claimed Israel as a heritage, and now he says, I despise them. In the strongest terms possible, they are whores to idols. Heinous and callous sin deserves tough and rough speech, and God gives it to them in the Old Testament. Calling them whores and saying he abhors them is as strong a language as you can use. So how are we to compare this then to what's going on for us here in the United States? The bottom line is the abortion movement in this country is founded on several principles that we see in this text. One, those who have fought for the right of abortion have typically landed on the side of offering these children up out of sake of the mother. That's the way they've often done it. But if you read them, what they're actually saying is, is there are higher things to aspire to than having children. So if a baby's precious, then what is it that's higher to achieve? That It has to be higher if you're willing to sacrifice it. Something's got to be greater to sacrifice to it. And the answer is education, career, progress, and economic security. When you read those who promote the right to abort, that's their main defense. These young women deserve the right to go to college. They deserve the right to have a career. They deserve the right to be economically secure. Those things are idols. And our children are being sacrificed on the altar of those idols. And I say that to say our poor women and our culture is as deceived by these demons as the people in Israel were. They're not doing it. Most of them are not doing it callously. They're doing it because they're being told it's the right thing to do. If you had gone into Israel on this day and you had seen these babies being offered, there would have been plenty of excuse why it was being done. Justification. But no one was standing for justice. Plenty of saying it's right, but no one was standing for righteousness. And the same is true in our culture. In our culture... We have different idols. They're not statue. They're not wood. They're not stone. They're progress, economic stability, comfort, and education. Those are our idols. And our generations are being put on those idols' altars. Secondly, I see here a deceptiveness. They sacrifice their sons and daughters to the demons. The demons involved know what they're doing and what they're doing is destroying God's people. They're after a deeper goal than even the Canaanites. And unfortunately, in our society, we're under the influence of those same demonic forces. 
And it comes out in odd ways for us. I was reading for this sermon in First Things, a journal that's written, a Christian journal. 90%, 90% of all abortion clinics in the United States are located in what they call urban centers of America. It's quite disturbing when you start looking at it. There was a racial component to this offering of sons and daughters. And I'm not going to get into all the depths of that. But if you start digging into the numbers in our country, you see there's a racial component to abortion. Why aren't the clinics being built in the suburbs? Why aren't they being built among the white masses? There could be demonic people at work, uh, demonic forces at work among these people. And you go all the way back and read the people. Again, you have to read why, the people that are writing the legislature. You don't, you don't read the people on the streets. You read the people that are writing the legislation and who they reference. And you go read those. The beginnings of abortion in this country was over eugenics because poor white people and people of color had no right to live in this country. So 90% of their centers now in Planned Parenthood are built in urban centers where poor people typically live working class people and people of color. There's a demonic element to what's going on in our country. There's a purge going on in our country. And the question is, will we respond as verse 3 calls us to? Will we be just and will be righteous or will we ignore it? There's another component here. That I go to quickly. And then I want to draw it here. Thus, they became unclean in their acts. And they played the whore in their deeds. And God hated his heritage. He gave them out over among the nations. And their enemies oppressed them. And they brought into subjection under their power the Israelites. And many times he delivered them. But they were rebellious in their purpose. And they brought low their iniquity through their iniquity the cycle that's going on in israel i said repeated itself hundreds of times and it did it repeated itself hundreds of times and every time our country tries to fight against the plague that is among us of abortion a new argument's posed and a new we're oppressed anew by this plague just as we think we're going to break out of the loop we're pulled back in the loop from another direction. We are now oppressed by the things that we thought we were gaining freedom to accomplish through things like abortion. We're oppressed by education. We're oppressed by working long hours and having economic stability. Those things have become our gods, and they are hard gods, impossible to please. There's never enough. And Israel lived this, and we are living it almost identically. So, if you end the message there, you end the message where the psalmist was in verse 46. There's, it's unresolved. There's, then there's no hope. 
We're murdering our babies, and we're doing it, you're saying, to idols, but there's no deliverance. Yes. There's deliverance. First, our cry must be like theirs. In verse 47. Save us, O Lord our God. There must be repentance. There must be a call to action. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give the thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Save us must be our cry. Corporately and individually. The fight over abortion in this country has become political and has become personal. But what we need is for it to become spiritual. We need the people of this country to hear the gospel of salvation through Christ. And we need them to hear it. That there is hope for their future. And the hope is not in economics. And the hope is not in that education. But the hope is in Christ and Him alone. Save us, O God, needs to be our cry. Gather these people to Yourself needs to be our cry. That we all might praise Your glory and give praise to Your name. And so, what hope do we have if we cry, save us, O Lord? The second application is, God is faithful. Look in the section I skipped. Nevertheless, Verse 44, he looked upon their distress. He heard their cry. He remembered his covenant. And he had steadfast love towards them. He caused them to be pitied by their captors. Cry for mercy and receive mercy. God is a merciful God. He is a faithful God. He never turns his back on his people. Save us, O God, for you are merciful. Third application, we need to expose the horrors of what is taking place in America. The horror of abortion must become front page news. We need to go and watch the videos. We need to read the descriptions. We need to see it. Our callousness comes from ignorance because what it's done is done sanitized behind closed doors. It's clean. But it's never clean when you offer babies on idol altars. And we need to see the pictures of doctors delimbing Unborn babies, as they squirm, we need to see it. Say, I just can't take it. It'll break my heart. It needs to break your heart. Everyone in Israel needed to go to the coastland and watch these children be cut open. But what had happened was they they just separated themselves. They ignored it. They pretended it wasn't happening. And we need to stop that. I'm not ready yet to show it here. We have a lot of children. 
But I would encourage you, it is available. I can give you the websites, and you need to look at it. You need to see the horrors of it. And when you see it, you will instinctively cry out, save us. Because you will realize what's being done is horror. It's a plague. We need to cry for salvation. We need from the merciful God because we see our situation. We know what we've done. That's what we need. I, last application comes from Psalm 82. I know it's not fair to jump and steal, but Psalm 82 needs to be Application number four. This church, as a church, must give justice to the weak and the fatherless and maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. We must rescue the weak and the needy. We must deliver them from the hand of the wicked. That must become our call. We must all individually and corporately inherit that as our place in society. It's strange to me that with such horrors going on, the best we can do often is, the best we can do is to watch it on TV and say, boy, that's sad. That's the best we can do. And we can even mock in our circles those who go and march on streets with signs. Laugh at them as if, oh, what good are they doing? But where we all need to be, beyond mocking and ignoring, it's where we need to be, is we need to be giving Justice to those who are being unjustly treated. We need to be caring for the weak and caring for the fatherless. And that is why we support two main ministries in our church. And we all need to throw our weight behind them and do all we can to help their causes reach their ends. One is Save a Life in Cone County. You have an hour a week, ladies. They can use your hour to answer a phone, to seal up envelopes, to organize material, to sit and hold the hand of a young mother who's trying to make the hardest decision of her life. They can use your hour at Save a Life. And Tamara tells me now that they're building a north extension the grace of a, of a church there, Eagle Point, and they've got a facility, and they're going to build a northern location to reach out to the north half and JSU and the people in that end of the county. So you say, well, I can't drive to Anniston. You know, I, I just don't have time to do that on my lunch. Hey, people up north, they're building you a campus. So when you get your lunch break once a week, you can go and help at that campus. And people down south can help at this campus. We need to throw our 
support behind, physically, monetarily, prayers, every way we can. I'm excited that they're launching into the schools, and this is a way you can be praying. An abstinence program. And I'm going to be, hopefully, trained to do that and to go into schools and teach a biblically-based abstinence course in public schools at their request. So there's, there is a place, an outlet. I don't just bring you a message about all the, the terrible things you've heard to leave you with no hope. There's hope in Christ, and there's hope in these practical ways of helping. So that's one ministry we support here strongly, and you can put your support behind that ministry at Save Life. If you want more information, Tamara Brown would be a great person to talk to in our church. Or you can just call their office and talk to them. Second ministry that's birthed in our church by the people here and is already ministering to many is the Micah's Hope Adoption Ministry. As an alternative to children being left fatherless, we are offering adoption as an alternative, as the biblical alternative to that. And we, by the grace of God, have seen in two years nine children come home to families through giving money, supporting them through prayer, and giving money to meet the need and the expense of adoption. So you're already in the fight. All I'm asking you to do is to see the horrors of the fight, know the demons you're fighting are real, and fight with the gospel and the grace of Christ. There's a place for everybody in this church. Because the cries of the unborn go into the sanctuary of our Father. And He hears them. And if He would not spare His people Israel for sacrificing their children, don't fancy us more important than them. He will not spare us. He will not spare us. So let's go and pray. And seek out opportunities to be in the fight for the sake of Christ. Let's pray. Father, as we close, we've looked.